Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is content strategist Peter Winnick. Today we will discuss monetizing your platform strategically. Peter is a New York City-based content strategy consultant who works with nonfiction authors and thought leaders. He has over 20 years of experience and has worked with a large number of best-selling authors and renowned thought leaders, including Keith Ferrazzi, Chip Conley, Steve Shapiro, and Carol Roth. He has built and managed several consulting and professional development organizations. Peter can be found online at thoughtleadershipleverage.com. Peter, welcome. Welcome. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm great today. What is a content strategist? That's a great question, or at least I think it's a great question. Ultimately, what I do is I work with a variety, wide variety of um, authors, thought leaders, and gurus and help them figure out the best way to take their content, which is normally represented in a book, and figure out what else you can do with it. And, and uh, what I mean by that is, is a book is, uh, you know, it's something physical. We can touch it. People spend a lot of time a lot of energy, a lot of effort putting it together. But when it comes to the business side of it, it's, it's not the be-all and end-all. Most people are not making a living writing books today unless you happen to run for vice president or something. So I help them look at the content that's represented in the book or, or in other forms and figure out what to do with it. And what that means is we, we identify who, who is it going to have the greatest impact on. So who is your target market? Um, from there, we need to understand how that market consumes content. Do they prefer videos? Do they prefer workshops? Do they prefer uh, some sort of an assessment tool, consulting engagements, etc.? There's lots and lots and lots of things to do with content, and we just need to align the needs of the target market um, and, and the format that they prefer to consume content in and then figure out how to do that. Either we develop it on our own, we partner with other organizations uh, that have the distribution, etc. That sounds really great. I wish I had found you when I published my first book. Right. Are there a lot of content strategy consultants? This is the first time I hear of someone with this as a specialty. No, I, I don't believe there are. I mean, there are a couple of folks here and there that I... I come across that do similar things, but the reason I, I do what I do in the way that I do it is after working for years with a variety of authors and thought leaders, what I realized was the market for them is really, really, really fragmented. So they might have a phenomenal idea for a book. Traditionally, they might uh, you know, tap into their network and get a book agent. A book agent may get them a publishing deal. Um, that was probably in the days before self-publishing was as popular as it is today. And then different segments of the market would kind of come at them. So if the book did really well, maybe a publicist would come at them, maybe a speaking agent, maybe a client would come at them with a need. Nobody was looking at it holistically. And I just kind of took a step back and said, that's really, really difficult. Every step of the way, um, you've got to kind of put a whole team together. And I said, you know, if I was, a, a, if my clients were athletes, they would have one agent. And I, and I don't, really like the term agent for what I do, that would take care of all of their needs, right? And all the, all the athlete has to do is figure out how to be the best at what they do, which is what I want my clients to be doing, not worrying about how to do a partnership deal with getting their content into China. That's, that's something that if you haven't done that before, why would you know how to do that? It seems to me, based on my limited experience in content and book publishing, that really the ideal time to 
be in touch with someone that is doing what you're doing is before you write the book. Is that how it works? Sure. So uh, there's a couple of scenarios. The perfect scenario is absolutely before the, the, you write the book. Um, and, and I've dealt with less than perfect scenarios. But before you write the book, we, we want to sit down. We want to develop a strategy. We want to identify the platform. And oftentimes that will, res will result in making changes to what the book may have looked like without having the clarity around a strategy. So we're not going to, to compromise the integrity of the models or the, the, the essence of the content. But there's certain levers that we want to move around a little bit to make sure that we're, we're communicating effectively um, in the book. And also looking at the book is not a, a be-all and end-all, but it's part of a more holistic process. So when do you release the book relative to other services, offerings, and things that you're doing as well? So yeah, I, the short answer to your question is before the book is, is clearly better than, than uh, during or absolutely better than after. You mentioned something that I also caught my ear as soon as I heard it, which is that most authors do not end up making a lot of money from book publishing. It's, so if I hear you correctly, it's a step in a bigger plan of action. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I think the, the struggle that first-time authors and oftentimes people that have written several times before is logically you would think, I'm the content person. I've got the great idea. And people are interested in this great idea. My agent got me the book deal or whatever the case may be. And the publisher knows what they need to know, which is how do you sell books? But the reality is whether you are with a big publishing house today or whether you self-publish today or use any of the kind of hybrid models that are out there because it's not just self-published or big house, um, you are in charge of the marketing of not only your book but of your own brand and your own platform. And you can't leave that in the hands of the publisher. They just don't have the resources to do it. Um, and their interests aren't totally aligned with your interests all the time. I mean, clearly you both want to sell books, but that's all the publisher wants, where you probably want to do other things with it. You might want to get into the speaking universe. You might want to use that as a way to uh, build your brand, to credentialize yourself, to uh, introduce different offerings and services to the marketplace, etc. And the publisher cares less and less about anything other than how many units of book number X are we going to be able to sell. And in fact, when you look at the numbers, it, the statistics are really challenging in terms of the number of books that are sold per title overall is relatively small. Most people think that if you're an author, you're going to strike it rich. And in fact, it, it's really not a path to wealth except for a very few authors. Right. Yeah, I'll give you a couple of depressing statistics. Um, one is the average nonfiction book, average business book, sells less than 2,000 units over its lifetime. So when you think about that, if it takes a year to write a book, you know, and, and maybe it's 18 months for some people, could be longer, and you're going to reach 2,000 people. I mean, I, I've talked more people out of writing books because of that and say, listen, it's actually easier and cheaper for you relative to the time and the energy that you expend to sit in Starbucks every day and buy someone a cup of coffee and tell them about what you're doing, right? So 2,000 books isn't a lot. You know, to be a bestseller, to be on a New York Times bestseller list or USA Today or Wall Street Journal is only twelve or 14,000 units in a week. And if you compare that to, you know, a box office of, uh, you know, a, a blockbuster film, a Harry Potter or something that's coming out, those are in the millions. So books 
don't reach large audiences. And part of that, of course, is because people are reading less and less, which is kind of a sad statistic. You talked about identifying your audience. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you would. How do you go about doing that? Sure. So there's a, there's a couple of ways to go about that. One is, you know, when I talk to clients and say, well, who, who do you think your contact impacts the most? Who's it most applicable to? And the worst answer in the world I get is everybody. Everybody could benefit from this. And ultimately, if, if it's everybody, I can't market to everybody. And you can't be best in class to everybody. So, so it's, a, it's a scary answer. We have to kind of prioritize that and say, okay, well, out of everybody in the universe, who is this best suited for? Is, is, is it a uh, by function? Is it a salesperson versus a newly minted manager? Is it a demographic? Is it a psychographic? Is, is it, you know, what is it? Who, who is it going to have the most impact on, on an individual basis, on a team basis, and ultimately on an organizational basis? And those seem like easy questions, but when you really step back and start to ponder that, they're, they're pretty tough to, 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 to answer properly. But, the, you know, the issue is to answer those things with as much precision and clarity as you can up front so that when you're writing and when you're thinking and when you're doing these things, you can visualize in your mind who you're talking to. Is it a, you know, a newly minted 31-year-old manager that is in a role for the, where for the first time they go from being an individual contributor to leading others? Okay, I can, I can get a picture of that in my mind and what their days might look like and the things that they're going to encounter that are going to be challenging to them that that book might be helpful in those circumstances. Does that make sense? Yes. How do you, if you have a client that answers you, everybody, which we hear in all walks of life also, especially in marketing and PR, and who you're trying to reach, well, everybody. What do you do at that point? Do you go back to your client and say, no, well, I need you to work on a more specific answer, or do you try to find the answer yourself? How do you resolve that? It's typically collaborative because sometimes clients have a vision of who they'd like to reach from an idealistic perspective or based on where they come from or, or the industries they were in, etc., so my, my job is to, to get them to understand that the application of their content could be to a totally different market uh, than one that they, were, they knew about or were exposed to. Um, but it also has to be one that they're comfortable with, right? So it's, it's, it's collaborative. Um, there's also research involved because typically um, others have content that uh, I doubt it's identical, but there are similarities in, in different content streams. And there are different uh, approaches that work for different markets. So I think it's kind of my expertise in being able to market content in a variety of modalities alongside with the, the, the passion and the vision of, of the author or the thought leader. How do you decide? Are there, are there topics? Are there situations where you sit down with this client that says, oh, my topic, my book, my content applies to everybody. Are there times where you just sit down and look at them and say, no, you really, you shouldn't be publishing this book or you should be promoting this book or this content? Is there some easy way or process that you go through that helps you make that decision or make that recommendation to go forward or to stop? Sure. A lot of it is... is uh combining uh, some education with some coaching. So 
people that say it applies to everyone, you know, they probably believe that. And, and, and there might be a lot of reasons that they do believe that. And the reality is there is content that could apply to everyone. The reality is nobody has unlimited resources, right? So you have to prioritize and focus based on that. Um, you know, one of the questions that, that I use, which, which helps us get there is, well, who's going to pay for it? Right. And, 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 you know, clients will say, well, wh what do you mean? And it's, you know, if you, you go to the self-help section at a bookstore, assuming we still have bookstores these days, right. Um, and you, you know, move over to the nonfiction business section. There are a lot of books that could really, uh, you know, be in either place, but it's a marketing decision that says, no, we're going to position this book as a, as, as a business book versus a self-help book. And a lot of the reasoning behind that is business books, the content and the derivative offerings that come from that um, companies will pay for. Whereas a self-help book, there aren't too many companies that are going to pay for uh, get rich quick type books or dieting books or those type of things. So you have to ask the litmus test of, you know, could, could an executive or a middle manager, whoever your target market is, have the audacity to put this on an expense account and expect that, you know, their manager at IBM or, or, or wherever would approve that. That's a kind of quick litmus test to give us some clarity. Is there such a thing as the as a profile of the likely buyer of a nonfiction book? This is, since that's your area of specialty, we're looking at business people, business executives. Is there a gender, age, economic, socioeconomic profile that you have in mind when you're working with a client to promote a nonfiction book? Or content. Sure, there's there. I don't believe there's one overarching uh, demographic, psychographic, uh, or profile of any sort for all nonfiction books. You have to break it down a little bit further. So, for example, in the sales category, um, there's there's a couple. There's the the salesperson that's actively selling an individual contributor that might be a road warrior. What do they want? So someone like that, um, depending on the industry, some industries, it's more female than male. Typically, you know, that tends to skewer a little bit more male, um, typically a little bit younger, maybe early 30s to early to early 50s. And what they're looking for is not necessarily philosophy, but what can they what, what are the couple of quick tips they can extract from that book on the next flight to Denver or whatever that they can use tomorrow? Quick, impactful, tactical, right? Um, other categories could be senior leaders. There are, there are more books written for the, quote, CEO audience than there are CEOs. So that's kind of an interesting paradox. What that leads us to believe is just because a book is designed and written for a CEO, there's uh, a, a large population of people that would want to read that that are not CEOs. Maybe they aspire to be one. Where they'd like, you know, they see that at something at some point in their career they'd like to be, and those tend to be focused on on strategy, on uh, employee engagement, um, uh, changes in the marketplace, uh, etc. Are there strategies that you have observed are more likely to be successful? So when you look at the content producers that you have worked with the highly successful individuals who have produced books or content that have been successful, depending on how you want to measure it, but let's just use the word successful here in the general sense. 
are there particular strategies that you find are more likely to get to that success? Sure. Uh, the the number one, if I had to, if I had to kind of give the number one, it would be how how can we tell a story based on data and based on facts that show that the impact of that content drives a business result. Okay, so there's lots of content out there that intuitively feels good or intuitively makes sense, and that will only get you so far. But if you can take that to the next level and show that the content drives a business result uh, that's important to that business, whether that's retaining clients, whether that's increasing market share, whether that's um, employee in, uh, retention, employee engagement, if you can get specific to a business impact, and then it becomes an ROI issue, right? Then the conversation is, uh, would the organization spend X dollars to yield, you know, X times Y or something? Does that make sense? Yes, if you're, you're making the argument that if you clearly identify the benefits, then you're more likely to get results. Right, and I, I, it seems obvious, but lots of folks in the content space don't put themselves through the rigor that other marketers would, right? So in, 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 it's kind of block and tackle marketing to understand, you know, what is your ROI for the investment someone is making in your product and services? And a lot of folks that are authors or thought leaders, just they don't think that way relative to content. But anytime you're in a B2B sales situation where an organization is, is paying for your services or goods, you better be able to answer the ROI question in this market. You just have to be, or you're not going to be around long. How do you define success? Going back to that question, because one of the things that we said we were going to talk about today was monetizing, but monetizing is one aspect of success, right? For some people, selling content or selling a book might not necessarily be why they're doing this. It might be because they're selling consulting services or products, and the book just helps position them as an expert. So how do you define success in this environment? Sure. You have to, you have to um, define what success would look like up front. And I think oftentimes with a book, it gets squishy for people, and they try to do it you know, kind of along the way, which is not the way to do it. So if we have a, a book, and from that book, our objective is to um, develop and sell uh, an assessment tool. We need to know who we're selling it to, how many we'd like to sell, and over what period of time, what the revenue is going to be. And it's, it's, it's in essence a, a business plan that says, okay, the purpose of the book, let's say, is to generate the leads at these type of companies that can spend this type of money on our assessment tool or on our consulting program or on our training and development solution, our workshops, our speeches, and define that up front and then work against those goals. One of the steps that you describe in your process that you recommend for content, monetizing content, is in step three, you talk about value-added outreach. What are you referring to there? You talk about delivering content that is value, that is a value to the audience. Sure. So I think once you know who your audience is, um, you want to have a dialogue with that audience, not a monologue, Right. And in order to do that, you have to consistently give them content that's valuable and relevant to them, right? So in order to do that, you have to understand 
who they are, what is of value to them, and what type of content that you can give them that doesn't dilute or diminish the things that you're trying to sell, right? So it could be, um, uh, you know, a monthly tip. It could be a video. It could be a case study. Uh, it could be sharing um, an observation or a story uh, that, that happened to you serendipitously that drives the point home that they could learn from. It's about learning. It's about getting people to think, do, behave, or act differently in some way as a result of being exposed to your content. So you can't just expose it to them in one way, meaning a book or, or seeing you speak. You have to give it to them in a variety of ways so they can, they can consume it as they will. Different people react to different content in different ways. And there's no way to know if that uh, potential client prefers uh, you know, one format over another. So you have to be able to take advantage of all the modalities that exist today. An expert whose book I read recently says that sharing your most valuable information for free is your best tool to promoting yourself as an expert. Do you agree with that? Yeah, 100%. I, I, um, it happens less and less frequently today. But, but what I used to hear a little bit more of is, well, if I put that all out there in the book, they don't need me or my tools or my services. And I, I, I scratch my head and go, you know, we live in a transparent world, right? And, and the days of hoarding information um, are over. And we could look at that in the real estate business. We can look at that in the travel business. We can look at that in the financial business. It's a transparent world that we live in. And if you don't believe that your content is strong enough where you can put it out there uh, in its entirety and still be successful, then you probably don't believe in it strong enough, you know, or it might not be that powerful. And if you look at, you know, you, you can probably pick um, any of the top business books of this year, last year, next year, or 10 years ago. <clears throat> Most of them have an entire roadmap of exactly everything that you need to do to implement this. The reality is most people won't do that on their own. And those that will, that's okay too. They probably wouldn't have been clients anyway. And they're not really taking away from um, what you're doing. If they can experience it and have some great results without paying you and touching you, there's some, some um, secondary benefits to the author from that as well. But, but the days of hiding the information and only, only giving people a little bit of a teaser, um, that, that works in the infomercial world. Infomercial world, It doesn't work in the, in, the, in the real business world, in my humble opinion. How do you decide what to give away and what to hold back? Within that same conversation, do you give the headlines? Do you give that most best knowledge away for free? Do you give book copies away? How do you decide what to give and who to give it to? Sure. Uh, well, I hate to sound like a consultant, but it depends. So on, for one example, if we look at a, a model that most people are pretty familiar with, situational leadership, Ken Blanchard's content. Um, ultimately, and, and, and I'm not trying to uh, oversimplify this or be disrespectful, it's a quadrant. So they give away that quadrant as often as they can to get it exposed to people. Now, the way they make their money is, is, is having people teach others on what it means to be a situational leader, how to coach people in that methodology, etc. And that's a multi, multi, multi-million dollar business. So in that case, they're giving away 
the model because it's a pretty simple model and charging for the, uh, getting people to be experts or proficient or masters of that model. Um, that's one way. Uh, when it comes to books, I think a lot of people think that it's about selling the books, but, but one of the things I coach my clients on is to say, listen, let's think about who the 50 people are in the world or 100 people or whatever the case may be that if we got their book into, this, into their hands could change the universe for you and be really specific with that and go about doing that. Giving away a book is a pretty cheap marketing effort if the potential uh, uh, engagement on the other side of that is a large engagement. And I think a lot of times authors don't give away enough books or they give away too many books to the wrong people. Um, other cases, when it comes to other assessment tools, we, we see a pretty common model where there's a free assessment you could take if you bought the book or just go to a website or something. Um, that's kind of a tip of the iceberg. Maybe it takes you five minutes, you answer 10 questions and it gives you some insight into some, uh, characteristic or trait or strength or something. Um, and people get intrigued by that and they say, well, if you like that, there's a more comprehensive version of this that costs some money. So that's kind of a free sample model. Um, but I think ultimately, um, the line depends on what you're, what you're selling and can you give away as much as you can to get people to have that aha moment, to have that taste of it. I mean, you know, you walk into the bakery and it smells like cookies and they give you a tiny piece of a cookie and it's warm and it's gooey and you put it in your mouth. You're probably going to walk out with a box of cookies, right? Um, and it's kind of the same, the same model that we think about. I've seen authors that have what looks to me like teasers in the book, and then they refer you to a website for an assessment that you have to pay $700 for, or placements of other experts in the book that look to me like they're getting a referral fee <coughs> or some sort of an agreement. Is it okay to do that? Um, well, is it okay, I think, is a, uh, a, a personal decision based on the business that you want to be in. A lot of that type of stuff is more uh, occurs more in the um, uh, affiliate marketing, online marketing, internet marketing universe, which the end user is typically a consumer, meaning you or I paying out of our own pockets for that content. Um, those marketing tactics, if you will, don't typically work as well in a B2B environment. So again, it really depends on your market. Um, you know, some of those folks are incredibly ethical and the content is really, really good and some are less so. Um, but those are really more of a marketing tactic that's focused on a consumer as opposed to a, a, a classic B2B marketing uh, campaign. So you would say in general that if you are offering an assessment tool either within the content itself or if you're referring your readers to another place, maybe a website, that you should be doing that for free, not necessarily using it as a direct sales tool. Did I understand correctly? Um, no, no, what I'm saying is if you're in the market of selling content to directly to consumers, which some people are, then that's okay. If you're in the market of selling uh, B2B to you know the Fortune 1000 or, or global nonprofits, etc., then I would say probably not. Let's go back to the coaching for a, a, a moment. At what point does a content producer 
be it a business or a book author, an executive, somebody who's thinking about producing content, how do they know that they need a coach? And of course, every coach wants everybody to hire their services, but there must be some point at which you decide I can do this on my own or I need someone to help me along in the process. Yeah, I um, I don't really like the term coach because it's become so vague and means lots of things to lots of people. But I think the, the question is really at what point do they need some help, right, beyond where they are? Um, I think there's a kind of couple of patterns that I see. One is it's probably a good time to look for some help. If you've achieved a level of success that if you're honest with where you are, what you have is a practice versus a business. And and the way I define that is a practice is is something where a vast majority of the revenue, let's say 80 to 90%, sometimes 100%, is generated strictly as a result of the author or thought leader doing stuff. So that could be speaking, consulting, writing, etc. Um, you know, no different than an accountant uh, uh, or an, a, an attorney, right? The thought leader is doing stuff and that stuff generates money. If the thought leader gets hit by a bus or stops doing stuff, money stops coming in. That's a practice. And oftentimes I find there's an inflection point where they know they've got a great practice and they never thought they'd be as successful as they are in that practice. They're, they're doing what they love every day. They're, they're living the life that they'd like. They're comfortable financially, but they want it to be a business. They want it to, they want people to be buying the content and the impact of that content and paying for that without it being contingent on the author or thought leader being the only, um, uh, way to deliver that. So that, that's a big area that I focus on with a, with a large percentage of my clients. They're successful, but they want to transform themselves from a practice to a business. Um, the other would be, you know, early on when, when, um, you're first starting out at this to get an understanding of what that marketplace looks like and what it's going to take to be successful. I mean, I think what I find in this space and what, what, what I love about it is almost every one of my clients, I, I would actually say every one of my clients to a T is doing something they're incredibly passionate about. They've got deep expertise in and they just, they love it. And they could be doing lots and lots of other things. These are brilliant folks, but they choose to make a living and, and do what they're passionate about, which is great. Um, they just need sometimes some help to figure out if they're doing it the best way or there, if there could be other ways to do it because they just they don't know or, or they haven't been there or you know it's easier to learn from uh, best practices of others and mistakes others have made than to you know go at it on your own and, and stumble along the way. What kind of a time and resource commitment is involved? In other words, how much of your time as a consultant, and I, maybe it's a range rather than a typical, because of course there can be so many differences even within the nonfiction space, but what are we looking at in terms of resources of your time and your client's time and an overall timeline Sure. So where, where I start with probably 90% of my clients is with a strategy session. And there's three components to that. It takes three to five weeks from start to finish for us to complete the process. And there's three phases. The first phase is I consume all of their content 
or as much of it as I, I, I physically can in whatever format it's in. So that could be everything from reading books that have been published five years ago, um, manuscripts, PowerPoints, videos, assessment tools, really understanding it and consuming it um, ultimately on two levels. One is I want to I understand what the promise of the content is. I want to understand their voice. And uh, the second level is as I'm consuming it, you know, my, my business development brain is clicking off going, wow, that would be really cool to put into a coaching model for high potentials. Or I can envision this as an index or an assessment tool or whatever. So that's the first step. The other part of the first step is I take an inventory of their intangibles. And what I mean by that is, is everybody has uh, specific resources. Everybody could say I can afford to spend X dollars or not afford to spend X dollars. But what people don't do enough of is look at these, these other intangible assets that they have that could be used in a way that's of, that could generate value for them. A lot of that is relationships that they have, organizations that they belong to, um, former employers that they have a good rapport with, you know, people that can help them if we can be specific and ask those people to help them in a specific way. Um, the second phase in the process is we get together. We spend about five, six hours in a room whiteboarding and coming up with the platform, um, uh, an initial product roadmap, and understanding the business format. And I'm not talking about um, as a lawyer might counsel you, but what business do they want to be in? Are they capable of being in? And, and should they or shouldn't they be in? Do they want to build a training company or do they want to license their content to other great training companies um, and have a smaller slice of a bigger pie? Do they want to um, you know, spend more of their time on the speaking circuit or is that really a necessary evil for them? It really comes down to what do they want to be doing and how do we design a business um, that can help them enjoy what they're doing and, and reach the, the audience they want to they want to reach. Um, and then the third step in the process is we we reconvene about a week or two later after we do the whiteboarding piece. And ultimately, what we've got is a roadmap that'll cover eighteen to thirty six months with specific milestones, specific goals, specific specific objectives, and an initial product uh, product and service uh, roadmap. And that's where I start with ninety percent of the clients, and that should really be the guiding the guide, the guide, the map, if you will, because what I find is I, I've yet to meet a client that's lazy and I've yet to meet a client that, that's not inundated with activity. I've met dozens and dozens and dozens of clients that don't have a way to understand or to put a filter on. I should be doing more of this and less of this. And I can't let it, I, I can't continue to just be reactive. I've got to be proactive and, and understand what I'm trying to achieve. So I know if I'm getting there, like any other business and it's putting some you know traditional business discipline and processes in place onto what is you know oftentimes a, a a kind of a squishy thing right monetizing content is not the same as Procter and Gamble Gamble uh uh you know coming out with a a new paper towel right it's it's a little bit squishier than that does that answer your question yes i like the technical term squishy that's a highly technical term right now, you're talking about a lengthy, very involved process. Would you hazard a guess as to how many hours of your and your client's time you're investing on average? Well, the strategy actually um, is not a ton of my time and it's not a ton of the client's time. If the client is organized and can get me the information that I need quickly, um, it may be, I don't know, 
six, eight, 10 hours of their time and I'm doing most of the heavy lifting, if they're not as organized, uh, and, and a lot of them aren't, uh, it, it's a good excuse to start getting organized to take, you know, some basic things, you, you know, send me all your content and it's fragmented and it's in five different computers and they don't have an inventory of it. You know, that, that might take them a couple days to get together. Um, so it's, it's, it's not a huge time commitment. Like I said, it takes three to five weeks, but that's not full time. I mean, it's, it's, you know, a couple of days of my time, a couple of days of their time spread out over, you know, four, five, six weeks. What about the 18 to 36 months that you described for the overall plan? For the implementation of that plan? Exactly. Yeah. So the implementation, three things happen after we do the strategy work together. Number one is a client will say to me, Peter, thanks. That was awesome. Um, I've got a team in place and I know what I need to do or I can put a team to place in place and we're going to implement and we're going to execute. And I say, okay, great. Good luck. Let me know if I can help you in the future and you know, let's touch base and see where it's going. That doesn't happen often, quite frankly. Um, the second response I get is, wow, there's lots to do here. Um, I've got a team where I individually can do A, B, and C, but you, meaning me, uh, are, are best qualified to do D, E, and F. Let's come up with a way where I can do this and you can do that. And that would typically be some sort of a retainer relationship or something like that over a period of time uh, against uh, you know specific deliverables. And then the third is, all right, Peter, I want to write my books and do my speaking. I don't want to do any of this stuff. You know, you do it or you put together the team to do it or whatever it's going to take. And, and you know, I've done that as well. It really depends on where they are, um, the speed at which they want to get to the next level, the resources that they have and the opportunities that are uh, in, in front of them. What investment in budget are we talking about or range of Sure. So this, the strategy um, piece is, is typically a fixed fee project that I do, and it tends to start at 7500 or so. And, you know, the, the retainers really, really, really vary depending on what I need to do and how much of my time they need, etc. Ultimately, what I do with a small subset of my clients that we've worked together over a period of time and really gotten to understand and know each other and realize there's, there's a fit and, and we're successful and we enjoy working together is some sort of a partnership where we'll own assets together. And an asset is, is, is you know, how do we put a piece of content in a specific format uh, to serve a specific market? And the thought leader will have certain responsibilities with that and I'll have others. I mean, I think the key differentiator between what I do and what strategists do on a macro level, you know, if you look at the McKinsey's of the world or, 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 or you know, just strategy people in general, is I actually get my hands dirty. And, and I think strategy is a luxury sometimes. And it's actually a waste of everybody's resources, mine included, if there is no implementation, right? If there is no execution. Coming up with great ideas is easy. Pretty much anybody with a half a brain and, and sometimes a glass or two of wine uh, can come up with brilliant ideas. It's those that can implement and execute and have impact on those ideas in the marketplace and acquire real clients that'll pay real dollars to consume your content. And, you know, I like to wear both hats. I like to start with strategy and stay with my clients throughout the process of implementation, which is, which is where the fun is, at least the fun to me. It sounds like people need to do some hard thinking before starting this whole process and decide 
what it is that they want out of the content that they're producing and what they're willing to do in terms of developing it and long-term implementing it? Um, I, I, I think that's largely true, but I think sometimes if you don't think big, you'll never get big. I mean, I think a lot of times people don't realize the other things that you can do with content. So, for example, um, in the quaint old days of five or six years ago, it was not easy, but not as difficult as it is today to be an author that wrote a book every couple of years and spent most of their time on the road delivering keynotes. And you can make a nice living and have a nice life and, and see your work impact people every day. And, and, and that's you know really satisfying for a lot of people. Um, today, that's much harder to do for a lot of reasons. The speaking market is off. The, the, the publishing business is off. And I think a lot of thought leaders don't realize other things that you can do with your content to have a bigger impact on people, teams, and organizations, and also to, to uh, have a bigger business, if you will. I mean, there are content-based businesses that are incredibly profitable, incredibly large, and are, are doing well by doing good. They're, they're, they're touching more people, making more money, um, and everybody's happy. The, the, the thought leader's happier. Clients are happier to be exposed to the content. Um, so I, I, I think it's, it's, a good, it, it, you know, it's a good symbiotic relationship. Tell us about that, Peter. When you're talking about content, you're not just talking about books. There's a lot more to content. Would you expand on that and specifically what you were talking a minute ago about these companies that are doing good with content? Sure. So if uh, the only way I would have been able to be exposed to an author's content would be to read his or her book and maybe see him or her speak, you know, that's limited, right? So even, even a book that sells incredibly well, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 copies, and an author that speaks once a week to 1,000 people, so that's another 50,000 people a year. Okay, so that's 100,000 people a year, my math is right, um, uh, that are exposed to the content. Well, that's a lot of people, but now imagine that that's developed into an e-learning system, for example, that you know 50 Fortune 1,000 companies are using. And they each have tens of thousands of employees that are exposed to that content. Or uh, uh, it's, it's converted into a, a coaching model or an assessment tool that thousands and tens of thousands of people can take and learn from. You just have a much broader reach. You know, if you look at, for example, uh, you know, a great content-based organization that I think a lot of people are familiar with today is TED, uh, the TED Conference. And, you know, that started as a conference, a very exclusive conference, a few thousand people a year going to the West Coast to see the biggest minds and the brightest people in a lot of different topics. And a few thousand people a year were exposed to it. Well, fast forward to where we are today, and TED Talks are downloaded millions of times a month uh, through iTunes and a variety of other formats. So these brilliant ideas from obscure people and famous people around the world over are now available for more and more people to consume. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's, that, to me, is that's where the world is going, and you've got to figure out as a thought leader how to get there and not be limited to what you can do. What you can do meaning what you can do physically and personally. Any one individual, no, no matter how smart, is, is limited because they're just human. In terms of the definition of content, you're saying it could be video, it could be audio, it could be print in terms of a book. And perhaps online, 
Sure, it could be it could be workshops that are not delivered by the thought leader that are licensed out to others to deliver that content. It could be coaching models. It could be assessment tools. It could be uh, an index. It could be traditional training and development solutions where where people are getting certified in, in a process or a methodology. You know, it's like a, a Six Sigma. Um, it could be a video series. It could be some sort of a product in a box. It could be a workbook. There's so many different things that you can do with content today. Um, some of it is is because technology is 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 so much easier to manage and deal with, and and you know some of it for a variety of other reasons. But there's lots and lots and lots of things you can do. You know, a blog is another way to get content out. You don't always need to write a book and wait 18 months to get out 300 pages. You can get out you know 500 words every other day in a blog post to get your content out. There's just so many ways to get content out today that are pretty easy. Um, some are easy and some not as easy to do. What tips, what suggestions would you offer to our listeners, Peter, who are hearing this conversation and getting all excited, thinking that there are so many things that they would like to do in terms of content development, these ideas that you've just shared about how to think outside the box in terms of what content itself can be? and what you sure. can do with it. What would you say to those who want to get started or maybe have already started and want to build on that? So the first thing I would do is, and, and, and some folks may have this already, but my experience, most don't, take an inventory of what you have. And what I mean by that is, is sit down and you know, put it in a simple spreadsheet. What, how, where is your content? What is the format that it's in? And, and what is that little piece of content? So, for example, it, it could be going through your blog and creating an inventory of all the blog posts you did, right? And that, that might be dozens or hundreds or, in some cases, thousands. It could be articles you've had published. It could be videos of speeches that you've given. It could be PowerPoints that you've used in a, in a, in a workshop. It could be workbooks. It could be books that you've written. So take an inventory of all your stuff. Again, another technical term. Um, and... You know, in that spreadsheet, put it what it is, what the format that it's in, etc., and start there. Most um, thought leaders, they because they're thought leaders, they gravitate towards creating new stuff, and most often um, they do that because that's what drives them. That's what they do. They're creatives, but oftentimes what they need to do is say, "Okay, here's what I got. Here's this inventory, and let me think about that for a few moments as if that was an asset. This is my portfolio. So I've got." 30 articles and 20 videos and two books and whatever. And the first thing to do is look at it and say, how can I repurpose this, right? So if everything that I have is in a blog, a written blog, you might want to look at that and say, you know what? I, I could sit in front of a camera and turn 10 of those articles into little five-minute quick talk videos because there's a, a huge population today that would prefer to consume content in video format versus reading a blog. So you don't need to, if you're going to go down the video path, sit down and go, Oh man, I need a whole bunch of ideas. You probably have the ideas in a different format and you just need to repurpose it. And when you repurpose your assets um, that you've already created, that's a better way to use your time than to always have to create something new. So that would be the first thing I do is, is, is take an inventory and figure out what you can repurpose and, and, and you know allocate some time and say, you know what, five hours a month this month, I'm going to spend repurposing my content. My objective is to create two new blog posts or a new tool or five new videos and, and, and give yourself some metrics and, uh, you know, spread that out over time. Does that, that answer your question? 
Yes. So your two big suggestions are to do inventory, identify what you have already, and then to figure out a way to repurpose that. Correct. Okay. Thank you, Peter, for joining us from New York City. Well, thank you for having me. And to our audience, thank you for listening to strategic content consultant Peter Winnick, who discussed monetizing your platform strategically. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com.